This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. So a couple years ago, I met a guy that works, uh, his nickname is a Tremor, uh, because he works in Memphis at the... Uh, I don't know what you call it, but the seismology center, right? Uh, because in Memphis, we are on a fault line, the New Madrid Fault, and that means that there's potential here in our community for an earthquake, right? So historically, there have been earthquakes along fault lines, and so in order to prepare for earthquakes, what you do is you study the ground, you take measurements, and you consider history, and you begin to plan and think through what are the things that we need to do to help our lives to flourish in light of the reality that an earthquake could happen. Well, so when you look back on history, you also say, hey, this earthquake took place, right? And so we want to study and know what caused the earthquake. How do we, uh, maybe we can't prevent them, but how do we prepare for them? And so when we look back on the history of the church, we also want to say, what were those earthquakes that happened in the history of the church to, to see these massive shifts that were taking place in the culture, in the church, and how can we look back at what caused those earthquakes so that we can get a better understanding of how we might anticipate how we're called to live. And I would submit to you that the book of Romans is an earthquake-causing book. If we look at the Reformation, one of the most significant things that's happened in the life of the church in the last thousand years, if we look at Luther and we look at Calvin and their writings and how God revealed himself to them, it was in the book of Romans that their lives were significantly changed. John Wesley, another church leader, has been massively impacted by the book of Romans. This letter that Paul writes, and I suggested last week that it was a, a love letter that, that Paul is writing to people that he really cares about. This letter informs us and moves us to think through what earthquakes are happening in the world around us and how do we prepare for them? What are the changes that God is doing in the culture and in the world in which we live? And how can we be prepared? I know that God is always working, often in ways that we don't anticipate. Certainly, here we are in 2021. We thought 2021 was going to be awesome, right? Because it wasn't 2020. But here we are. And you know, we have more of now than we did then, more of God's presence. Because we're dependent upon him and we're trusting him. And we're saying, Lord, we don't know what you have for us, but we know that you are for us. So with that kind of as our framework for why we're studying Romans, let's dig into this second section of the first chapter. We're going to spend the first four messages in this series on the first chapter because there's just so much here. I suppose you could spend a lifetime studying Romans. Uh, We're not going to do that. We're going to do it in one school year. Uh, But we want to dig into this chapter a good bit because I think this just sets up for us what Paul ends up telling us later on in chapter 1, 2, and 3 and just launches us into the, uh, the rest of the book. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And keep in mind, this is, I think, the second sentence in the book, right? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for this earth-shaking, ground-breaking word that has spoken for generations to the church and to believers as to what we are called to be and to do in light of Jesus. Give us ears to hear what you're saying. Give us a willingness to apply what you're teaching. Not only, Lord, do you come and accept us as we are, but you want to change us in light of your word. We should be different people when we leave as a result of encountering you. So I pray, Lord, that my people, my brothers and sisters, would be hearing from you and applying what you call them to do, to be faithful, so that you, Lord, would receive all the glory and that another earthquake, another culture-changing world would be created because of our reflection on these words. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, I went on a sabbatical this summer, and we were trying to think through, like, let's, uh, let's go on a big family trip, and uh, usually we go down to Florida and visit family down there, but let's take a trip to a place that we've never really been before, and so we decided, well, let's go out west and take a trip out west, and so we thought, well, where do we go, and we're trying to figure out the schedule, what's the timing with everybody's schedule in the summer, because we have people that do camps and do sports things and whatnot, and we picked this, this two-week section that was at the end of June, and we thought, let's go out, we'll fly to Seattle, and we'll drive down to Los Angeles, and we'll just kind of go along the coast, and we'll see all these amazing things, right? You can go to Pike Place Market and see where the guys throw the fish. They weren't throwing the fish the day that they were there for whatever, but we got these really good donuts, and we, we saw the Starbucks, the original Starbucks, that had a massively long line, and I said, let's go to that Starbucks because there's no line. We didn't go to either one. We went to Tchotchkes, some kind of place. We had all this fun stuff in Seattle. Then we went to Portland. I'd never been to Portland. It's a city of roses. And there are these uh, amazing like uh, food truck pods. So there's a place where there's like, all these food trucks. And we went there and we saw Big Sur, which is this amazing coastline. The Redwood Forest are all these amazing things. And we went to Los Angeles and we, had, we saw all this cool stuff. But as we were planning this trip, I realized, you know, I've got a good buddy named Mike that lives in Seattle. You know, maybe we could hook up with him one time uh, when we go out there. And then we realized, you know, there's a gal named Melissa that was, was in our wedding, and she's recently moved to Seattle. And then, you know, my cousin Jenny lives in Portland. So let's t- talk to her and see if maybe we could see her in Portland. And by the way, her sister Rebecca, who lives in Chicago, was going to be there the same time that we were there. And so we saw her. And then their sister, Rachel, lives in Napa Valley. And so we stayed with her. And then, this is crazy, we were at the campus of UCLA just because we're like, hey, let's go see a college campus because... Arden's going to be going to college at some point. And we're like, let's go to UCLA. And we're sitting there trying to figure out what are we going to do next because we got to drive all the way across LA. And I look up, and there's my cousin Aaron from Greenville, South Carolina. I'm like, Aaron! Aaron! And he just looks at me with this really mean look, like, like who is this? He goes, Matt? You know, like, so there they were because his daughter's going to be a freshman at UCLA. It was just a total 
providential appointment that we were sitting on that bench at the right time when Aaron, my cousin, who I'm really close to, walked by. So what for us became this desire to see the West Coast and all the cool stuff on the West Coast really became a trip about relationships. You know, we love the scenery and we love the, the climate, even though it was really hot and, you know, at different times. And, and, you know, it gets old being on the road, eating the same breakfast at Embassy Suites every time. I don't know how much more bacon I could have eaten that whole, this whole summer. But you, we were like, we saw so many people that were really important to us. And I was thinking about this as I was reflecting on the passage this morning. I think about Paul is longing to get to Rome. Right? We can sense this in his letter. He is eager to meet with and to be with this group of people that love Jesus in this crazy city. Right? And it's hard for us to kind of get our head around this because really when we think of Rome, we think of this majestic city with culture. There's all these, uh, these beautiful, you know, there's this, the ancient history, the Colosseum and all those things, but then church history, right? All these massive church buildings, the Vatican, all that opulence, right? We think of that. But think about when Paul was writing this letter to the church in Rome, how many people were actually in that community of faith? They probably didn't have a church building. It was a small group of people that were trying to be faithful in the Roman Empire, the capital of paganism, right? A financial center, a political center, a um, sexuality center, whatever you want to do. There's this group of believers that are wanting to walk by faith, and Paul is saying, man, I cannot wait to meet you. I cannot wait to be with you. And sure, he probably wants to see uh, the aqueducts and all some of the, the history. But you know what he's going there for? He wants to be with the people. You know, Rome is one of the most visited cities in the world. It's in the top 20 most visited cities, right? And for thousands of years, it's been a center of, of culture and economics and ingenuity and art. And I think in part, it's because Paul wrote this community of faith, this letter. And they began to walk by faith. And they began to reach that city and it began to be transformed by the power of the gospel. So here, let's look at what Paul says. These uh, four different kind of postures that Paul has with respect to the church in Rome. First of all, he's thankful. Verse number eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, I don't know that necessarily everybody in the whole entire world knows about the faith of the church in Rome, but Paul is saying something to them. You know, he's wanting to encourage them, and he's wanting to say, We're, we know that there are those in Rome, you may not be significant in number or in, in influence, but we know that there is a great faith of the people at the church in Rome. That word has gotten back to me as I've traveled, as I've been in Jerusalem, as I've gone around the Mediterranean. There is a, a, a faithful group of people in the church in Rome. Doesn't mean that there aren't issues in the church, but their reputation is a group of people of faithful believers. And you think about this, and I've alluded to this already. Think about the environment in which they were living. It was a hostile environment. Remember, I mentioned to you that throughout church history, uh, the church in Rome has been also called Babylon, referring to that, that city in Revelation, the city of sin and debauchery. I mean, imagine living in an environment where the culture was basically saying, hey, just do whatever you want to do. You can define yourself in any way you want to 
define yourself. The best thing for you to do is to live your dreams and to get success for your life. And that's the biggest value. And if anyone tells you you shouldn't be doing what you want to do, well, then they're wrong. And that's actually immoral of them to tell you that. Imagine living in a world like that. Oh, wait. Right? Now, we're not Rome, but similar. We're living in a moment where that's kind of the ethos. Just, just do what you want to do. You know, make up your own rules. You are your own gender. Your sex is completely about you and what you want. Entertain yourself constantly and pursue that which you most desire. Have your dreams and your, and your love, and it doesn't matter what anyone else wants. Just be committed fully to yourself and whatever image you want to pre present to the world. And yet, within that culture, within that community, there is a group of people that Paul says, your faith has been known all over the world. There are people in that culture that are saying, no, we are going to resist the urge to give in to the culture and to follow our own way. We're going to follow the way of Jesus. We're going to lay our lives down at the foot of the cross, and we're going to lay our lives down before the culture. And we're going to say we are here to die in the same way that Jesus has died because we want to glorify and honor the one who is the great Lord. You see, and we're going to do this not because we don't want to have a great life. but We want to have the most flourishing, amazing, wonderful life that anyone could have. And we believe that the way to find that is through the person of Jesus, who was the ultimate person. We believe that he has the keys of life. We believe that he is the Lord of the universe, and he demonstrates that for us on the cross by laying down his life, and we believe he knows what's best for us. Even though we have our own ideas about what is good, we know we've got to check with Jesus first because he is good, and he has demonstrated faithfulness, and so we're going to follow him. And so as Jesus goes, we're going to go. We're going to live for Jesus. We're going to stand up for Jesus, and we're going to follow him. So he is thankful. The second posture that Paul has toward the church in Rome is prayerful. Look at verse 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at the last succeed in coming to you. He is praying for them. Paul is praying for them. He says, I'm not ceasing in prayer. Now, I don't think that that means that every single moment of every day Paul is praying for the church in Rome, but that he is constantly and in a committed way praying for this group of people. He is praying. And for Paul, I think that praying is as important as preaching. Yes, he wants to open the scriptures to them. Yes, he wants to share with them what God's word says. But Paul is in prayer for all of the church. In, in nine of his letters... Paul gives thanks to God, thanking God in prayer for the church. He prays for them to have hope. He prays for them to have wisdom. He prays for them to grow in faith. He doesn't pray that they wouldn't face difficulty. He doesn't pray that their financial situation would improve. He prays for them to be more generous in the midst of whatever financial situation that they're in. And this is important because Paul is praying a lot. 
Right? If we're going to rank the, the most gifted people in the church of all time, right? Well, this is John Calvin and Martin Luther and John Wesley. Like if we're going to say, who is one of the most faithful followers of Jesus of all time? I would say Paul is probably in that top upper echelon of, of people who would say, now he would say, I'm the chief of sinners. But he's up there. He's in there, right? And if we want to pattern our life after one who is following Jesus most faithfully, then, then we need to be about prayer. Because there's a tendency for us, a tendency for me, is to say, well, here's an issue, here's a problem, let me come up with a solution to figure out what we need to do. I read a book once in seminary and it said this. <laughs> I listened to a podcast one time and it said this, they're doing this over there, so let me try that. Instead of saying, Lord, who am I? Who are you? What would you have us to be? What would you have us to do. There was a poem right there. How about that? God gave me a poem in the middle of the sermon. Praise the Lord. You see? But we want to pray. Instead of coming up with solutions and strategies and philosophies and methodologies and doing the next thing, is getting before the Lord and saying, God, please give us wisdom to know what you want to do. Both for the, the gigantic things in life, like Afghanistan and hurricanes and earthquakes and pandemics, but also in the little things. Like my Spouse and I are not getting along. I'm struggling with my child. I'm concerned about my financial future. I have a conflict with a neighbor or with a person at work. Is saying, Lord, help me to know who you want me to be in this situation. Let me not be the one that just jumps to a conclusion to figure out what to do, but rather to say, Lord, what do you want to do? Because in prayer... What so often happens is that, that God then realigns our heart and our life relative to the conflict. We become more gracious. We become more forgiving. We become more understanding. We're more readily willing to acknowledge our part in the difficulty instead of saying, well, this is what they've done to hurt or harm. It's in prayer when we humble ourselves that we see that, that God is the one who is working and that he can change the hearts of people and that he's going to accomplish his purposes. And we need only to align ourselves and to get in the flow with what he's doing to see that happen. What a great thing. I was talking uh, one time uh, with a mom who had a child that was kind of wandering in faith. And she said something to me that I've never forgotten. She said, I'm talking to him more about uh, God than I'm talking to God about him. Talking to my son more about God than I'm talking to God about my son. I thought that's a profound thing to say. Because it'd be my tendency to say, well, here's what you need to do. Let me fix this. Let me do this. Instead of saying, Lord, this is a person that's made in your image that you love that you created and you give me the privilege of being in relationship with, I pray that, God, this person's heart would be awakened to your glory. Or, Lord, you know the situation that I'm facing at work. It's really hard. This thing that's been causing me difficulty and stress and challenge, I'm asking, God, that you would give me the tools and the resources, that you would help me to know what to do and how to handle it, that I would be a humble, loving servant of Jesus in this situation. God, would you grant that to me? God loves to answer those kinds of prayers. If only his people would be more like Paul. If I would be more like Paul saying, Lord, please move me to prayer. Let prayer be the first thing that I do. If we want to see God do a massive work, if we want to see an earthquake, a good one, then we want to pray. 
I encourage you uh, to pray. You know, there's some places around the world where the church gathers together for prayer every day. Every single day they gather for prayer. There are believers that pray an hour or two every day. People gather for, for prayer meetings. They go all night long because they recognize and they know that they can't do it. And my concern for me is that because I've got seminary degrees and I've, I've got an office with books in it, I, I know the answers because I studied under somebody. Instead of saying, Lord, we want you to do something in the city of Memphis, in our community. We want to see revival. We want to see renewal. We want to see restored relationships. We want to see young people coming to know Jesus Christ. We want to see older people getting down and praying and serving our community. We want to see that, God. We want to see you do something powerful. Now, this is not to say, hey, pray one hour a day and God will do something, right? It's not uh, prescriptive. It's descriptive. Right? I'm not saying here's a prescription for you. I am saying here's a description of what God does when people start to pray. Do you think the church in Rome was praying? They had to look around their culture and say, there is no way we're going to do anything in the city unless we are about prayer. And oh, that we would have the same posture, the same willingness to say, Lord, we want to see people's lives changed for the sake of Jesus and our world renewed. Let's pray to that end, earnestly, prayerfully. Maybe right now, you need to say, you know, it's great in the moment to go, yeah, Matt, Matt said pray, that's good. But you can ignore me. What's God saying to you? Maybe to get serious about it and to say, I'm going to set aside a specific time or to increase it by this many minutes or this much percentage and to say, Lord, I'm committing to do this. What is God saying to you? So God, uh, Paul is thankful, he's prayerful, and this is a little bit of a twist here. He is insightful, capital S-I-G-H-T, right? Insightful. He says, I long to see you. I want to see you, right? He has this desire to connect with them. And more than just laying eyes on them and just seeing, putting a name and a face of these people that he's heard about, he wants to be in relationship with them. He wants to be in their presence. And we know how difficult it's been over this last year and a half to be disconnected, right? We're, we're looking at each other through masks. You can't see if someone's uh, smiling. Uh, you're, we're not able to get together in the same way. And that's hard. We're meant for relationships. We're meant to be in each other's presence. And you know what happens when you aren't around people. You can get used to not being around people. And this is no indictment of introverts because God made introverts. I know that. I believe it. And it's okay to be recharged by being alone. But we all need to be in relationship. And the less relationship that we have, there's a tendency or a potential for us to feel isolated. Right? You know, you hear something about someone and you go, oh, come on. You know, I can't believe they said or did that. And then you see him and you remember, oh, I love that guy. He's not so bad. We're in relationship. We're friends. But that disconnection that we feel can make us feel isolated. And we can say, oh, those people don't understand me. I'm not a part of that. And part of it is just being present and showing up and loving one another and being in relationship and recognizing that, that every family, every city, every church has conflict and whatnot. But as we get together in relationship, we can resolve those things. And Paul's saying, I want to be in your presence. I want to see you. I want to, to, to know you. There's something about being together. Now, we've got to do that in a wise way still. We want to do that. But Paul says why? He says, I want, he gives them the reason why he wants to see him. He says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, again, this church needs to be strengthened. The church in Rome 
the church in Memphis, the church in uh, Chicago, the church everywhere in Afghanistan, it needs to be strengthened. And Paul wants to strengthen them. He knows that by being with them, he can strengthen them. And you see, I think about this. Paul, man, he's a visionary, right? He sees how important the city of Rome is for the whole world. And so that's why for him, it's got a bullseye on it. I want to go to Rome because I know the difference that Rome can make. There were probably other people in the church that would say, don't go there. That's a waste of time. The church is not strong there. The people are crazy. They're this. They're that. They're too of much of that or whatever. But Paul says, no, this is the place where I believe that God is going to work because if we can reach people in Rome, then that is going to spread the gospel all over the Mediterranean. And he was right. He's got a strategic purpose for wanting to strengthen them, but he also has a personal purpose for wanting to strengthen them. What is it? He would become strengthened. It's an encouragement to him. Right? When, when you teach someone how to do something, you get something out of that. To watch someone be able to master a task that they couldn't do, it's gratifying, it's beneficial, and you also learn how to do that task more effectively. You're blessed when you encourage someone else. Paul knows that he's not doing this for selfish reasons, but he knows by strengthening the church in Rome that the whole world could potentially be reached, but they would also strengthen and encourage him. So who are the people in your life that need to be encouraged? You know how you can tell if someone needs to be encouraged? I've said this a bunch of times. It's easy to tell if someone needs to be encouraged. They're breathing. If they're breathing, they need to be encouraged. So how many of you are breathing in here? Raise your hand. There you go. We all need to be encouraged. And one of the ways to be encouraged is to offer encouragement. Is to say, hey, I saw that that you did, and that was awesome. Hey, thanks for being here. Right? Hey, Holly, thanks for being here every Sunday to navigate and to make a safe space for us to be with welcoming and greeting. Ushers, thanks for coming and being here. Carol, I had a great conversation with Carol. She's handing out the bulletins. Like, it's a, it's a great thing. People are serving, teaching Sunday school, or just walking through going, how's it going? That's a great thing to do. Everybody around you, everyone at your office needs to be encouraged. I'll tell you a quick story. I don't know why. I just heard a story about a guy that said he was struggling with email because he would just email all of his coworkers all the time. And he decided to, um, to go down and just go cubicle to cubicle and check in with people and say, hey, how's it going? And he did. And it was, it was great. And a couple weeks later, um, his, uh, a guy that he worked with bought him an Xbox. And he's a young guy, and he's like, hey, what's with the Xbox? You know, it's a video game station thing. And he goes, what's with the Xbox? He's like, oh, well, I, um, I sold my gun, and I wanted to buy you something nice. Like, what are you talking about? He said, well, I was at the end of it. I didn't want to live anymore, and so I got a gun. But when you came down and talked to me that day, I realized I had something to live for. So I sold it. I got you this Xbox. You want to come over and play video games? You know, it's like, now, if you encourage someone, are they going to buy you an Xbox? Probably not. But you know people that you work with. Maybe they're difficult. Maybe they're ornery. Maybe they're not easy to love. They need to be encouraged. And you know who's put them in your life? Jesus. Because they need to be encouraged. And you're the best one to do it. Do it the way that you want to do it. You don't have to do it the way that guy did it, but do it the way God's calling you to do it, to strengthen someone, to impart to them a spiritual gift. And you can even say, you know, you know I just wanted to come and connect with you because, man, God this is, is working in my life, and I wanted to just check in with you and see how you're doing. Name Jesus in the conversation. 
You don't have to say, hey, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? You can, but you don't have to. Just say, God's love compelled me to love you. And drop that there and see what happens. We're just presenting ourselves as people who are followers of Jesus everywhere we go, at the store, wherever we are. God is putting people in our path all the time. And his last posture, he is, first of all, thankful. He is prayerful. He is insightful because he wants to see him. And then he is also purposeful. Verse 15 says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, right? I've already talked about the strategic purpose of going to Rome, but Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. And I think when we hear that phrase, preach the gospel to you, what we have in mind is Paul standing behind a pulpit with a microphone, uh, projecting with the Bible this way. Now, I know that Paul preached and he taught. I know that. But the word uh, for preached is, uh, is a derivative of the word euangelion, right? That sounds familiar to us. Euangelion is the gospel, where we get evangel, where we get evangelized, where we get evangelism. Paul is wanting to bring the gospel to bear in their community. That's his purpose. He's wanting to live out the gospel with them. Now, I don't doubt that when Paul gets there, he's going to say, hey, uh, at someone's house, meet, meet at Joe's house. We're going to study the Bible, and I'm going to share with you what the Bible says. I'm sure that that happened. But I think what Paul is saying also is that I'm going to live the gospel with you through my life. I want to preach the gospel to you and all who are in Rome. He's not going to do messages for everybody. He's going to live out the gospel. And that's an encouraging thing to me because I think sometimes we, like, we read that verse and we go, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't speak well. I could never get up and, and do a talk like that. I didn't go to seminary, so I don't know how to preach the gospel. But here's the thing. You are preaching something with your life. Every one of us is preaching a sermon with our lives. And the question is, is your sermon about what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's doing or is your sermon about who I am and who, what I'm doing? Not me, because you're not preaching my sermon. I'm preaching my sermon. You're preaching your sermon. Now, we're never going to get this right perfectly, of course. But is your sermon about Jesus and what he's doing? And how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what you talk about, what you live? Right? Because, see, Paul had been rescued by the gospel. He had been restored by Jesus. Remember, Paul was persecuting the church. He was living by his own righteousness. He, he had all the degrees and all the religious insider language. He could present himself as a, as a good person outwardly, but inwardly, he was not at rest. He was living a life of torment, but he wanted to kill other people because he thought they were defaming the word of God. And then Jesus revealed himself to him in the same way that Jesus has revealed himself to you. And he's saying, man, I'm changing your trajectory. I'm changing what your life is going to be about. There's a sense in which he still had the same occupation, but he went about it in a completely different way. Not only is he sharing the, the word with the people of, of God, the, the, the Israelites, the Jews, but he also now is saying, look, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Those are people he never would have talked to before. He did not want to be in relationship with them. They had a different culture, a different language. His whole life he had been spent saying, you know, don't go around them. And yet now Paul is willing to travel to Rome, eager to see them. You see, God changed his heart. That's what Jesus does. The more Jesus we have in us, the more he changes us, the more forgiving we are, the more loving we are, the more willing we are to go out and to care for and to encourage and to see God work in our lives. It's a difference in trajectory. Now, you, you don't, you, if you want to preach a sermon, just let me know. Maybe we can work that in next Sunday. 
But preach a sermon with your life. Just by in the simple, ordinary ways of getting up and, and saying to your family, you know, God loves you, and I'm just thankful to be your husband, to be your wife, to be your child, to be your dad, to be your mom. I'm thankful that we have a family. I'm thankful for a church. I want to encourage the elders who are serving, the staff who is serving, the people who come in and help. Let me be part of that. Right? Just a small thing to get in and serve. That's strengthening. That's encouraging. That's preaching the gospel because what you're saying is that Jesus, that the Lord is great. And in big ways and in small ways, I want to contribute. And, and just showing up and being excited about Jesus is a great way of participating in the life of the church because you encourage other people. Your very presence encourages other people. I mean, when people look at you, do they say, here comes someone who knows Jesus? That's a convicting question. So we want to spend time with him so that more of him comes out. So this is a guy named Aurelius Augustinus, known to the world as Augustine of Hippo. Uh, he was destined to become one of the great Latin fathers of the early church. And he was born on a farm in what's now Algeria. But he had this turbulent youth because he was a slave to his sexual passions, like many people in Rome, like many people in Memphis. But his mother, Monica, prayed earnestly for him. He was a teacher of literature and rhetoric, and he moved successively to Carthage and to Rome and then to Milan. And he came under the spell of this man named Bishop Ambrose in his preaching. It was there in the summer of the year 386, a long time ago, when he was 32 years old, he went out into the garden near where he lived, just looking for some solitude. Maybe he was an introvert, God bless him. And he says this, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden, he wrote in his book called The Confessions, where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Maybe you haven't been out into the garden under a fig tree, but has there been a time in recent memory when the tears flowed freely, where you just felt sad, you just felt lost, you didn't know what to do, or maybe you just felt angry, the emotions were welling up, and you couldn't stand it. Suddenly, he says, I heard a voice from the nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it solely as a divine command to meet me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. This is the old uh, fan method of reading the Bible. You get it open and let the fan just blow it open just and read whatever's there. I don't really recommend it, but this worked for Augustine, so maybe it'll work for you. I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, I opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eye lit. This is, guess where it came from, what book? I'll give you one guess. Romans chapter 13, not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of the sentence, it was a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. When Jesus comes rushing into your life, the shadows of doubt, 
the hurt, the anger, the bitterness. When Jesus comes to fill us, all those things leave because he takes over. That doesn't mean they're not going to fight and scratch and claw themselves back to try to say to you, you're not good enough. You don't deserve this kind of peace. It's not for you. They will fight and claw, but Jesus is stronger because what? Great are you, Lord. So take some time. Take up and read. Listen, do the Romans one challenge. Read Romans every day this week, again, asking who are the partners that God is working with. Take up and read and listen and then obey. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.